Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, this is a milestone episode. Do you know why? Why, Mike? Because technically speaking, this is our 100th episode. Is it? I didn't realize that. I, well, I didn't either because of our funky numbering, but this is episode 75, which in and of itself is kind of a milestone. Yeah. And we've done 25 mini episodes, which means... Hold on, let me add them is... together. Hold on. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Do the five. math. You, it's 100? Yeah, this is our 100th episode. Now, we're not doing our big 100th episode celebration yet because we're going to save that for episode number 100 of our full episodes. We've got some big plans in store for that. Yeah. You have to wait a little while longer for that. But technically, this is our, our 100th episode. We're coming up on on two full years of doing After the Ending. I thought that was pretty exciting. That's amazing, actually. Yeah, it's, uh, that is a milestone. But we like to give the listeners, you know, full power when it comes to the full episodes. That's why we do have the separate numbering because the mini episodes are ones we can just slot in as and when we need them. And I'm sure all of our listeners appreciate that. I'm sure they do. And I'd like to say we have a new one because my good friend Kelvin is now listening to the podcast. Hello, Kelvin. Hi, Kelvin. Yes, I'm right behind you, Kelvin. <laughs> uh, he just said he uh, he finds it a bit strange, my voice coming out of his headphones. So hello, Kelvin. Enjoy the show. Welcome on board. There you go. Well, I hope he enjoys uh, hearing you speaking to him directly. Yes. And also for people who like listening to the show, but, you know, if you're at your PC or your whatever computer thing you're using at the time and you want to listen to the show as well, we're also putting the episodes on YouTube. So if you search for After the Ending Podcast, you'll be able to find it there. And I'll put links in wherever we can on the various podcast platforms where you're listening to this now. Yeah, we're getting we're going global, baby. That's it. Well, Mike, you're in America. I'm yeah, we're already England, global. So I know. Just, global. just was like a little sound bite. I thought it would work. You know? <laughs> we're going intergalactic, baby. <laughs> That's right. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Phil, why don't you tell people what we are going to be talking about in this week's episode? Yes. Well, as it's almost Valentine's Day, we're going to be going after the ending of The Secrets of Nim and Anaconda. Two of the most romantic films that I can think of. That's what I thought. That's what I'm <laughs> going to be watching those kind of films on Valentine's Day. Well, oh, to be fair, to be fair. Alone. I'm going to be there. there. <laughs> to be fair, we we had these ep- this episode planned for last week and we were going to do a Valentine's yeah. Day episode this week. But then a certain someone, <coughs> Phil, yes. uh, got, got sick and we had to air a mini episode. And it wasn't until about... Half an hour before recording when I said, oh, crap, this was supposed to be our Valentine's Day episode. <laughs> yes. And I thought it was a little little rush to try and pull together a whole Valentine's Day episode uh, you know, that quickly. So we decided to sort of uh, make this our Valentine's episode in spirit, if you yes. will. Yes, and I'm sure you people out there with a certain, you know, certain sense of humor could probably fit Anaconda into some kind of romantic <laughs> or overtly sexual connotation. But I'll leave that up to you, dear. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't see how you could do uh, that. I was thinking Anaconda like squeezes you like it's a great big hug. What, uh, what are you yeah, talking Yeah, that's what about? I meant. I think Nicki Minaj did a whole song about being, you know. Yeah, you know, like hugged. being hugged, right? Yeah, that's what Isn't it is. Isn't that what that song's about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, and, this, and also the classic one, which probably could be a good one to watch with the kids on Valentine's Day, is The Secret of Nim. Nice yep. bit of animated action. A childhood adventure. favorite. Yep. Yes. And we'll also be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1975. And there's some big films in that one. Yes, there are. And a little disclaimer, uh, both of our films, it turns out, this week have had sequels, uh, but they don't count because they were mostly direct to video. Uh, Anaconda had a, a second Anaconda film that did make it into theaters about seven years later, but there's yeah. no connection really uh, between the first one and the second one. There's none of the characters, none of the story is the same. It just has to do with giant snakes. And then and there was a direct-to-video sequel to... Oh, spoilers for that one, for the direct-to-video. Oh, let's ruin that one now, I don't Thanks, Phil. <laughs> There's a uh, direct-to-video sequel for Secret of Nim, uh, which neither of us has ever seen, and so we are disregarding that as well. So let's get to it, Phil. Okie doke. Let's go. Do you want to kick off with The Secret of Nim? Sure thing. Okay. H- hit me with what's happening and spoilers ahead. 
if you haven't seen any of these films before. All right, Secret of Nim, in 1982, directed by animation great Don Bluth. It is an adaptation of Robert C. O'Brien's 1971 children's novel called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. It features the voices of Elizabeth Hartman, Dom DeLuise, Will Wheaton, Derek Jacobi, Shannon Doherty, and John Carradine. So... In the story, Mrs. Brisby, a widowed field mouse, lives in a cinder block with her children on a farm. She's preparing to move out of the field as plowing time approaches, but her son Timothy has fallen ill. She needs the help of nearby rats to save her son who can't leave the house or he'll die. With the help of the great owl and a friendly crow named Jeremy, Mrs. Brisby journeys into the nearby rosebush in search of the wise leader Nicodemus. She meets heroic Justin and ruthless Jenner and learns that the rats are super smart. They even have electricity and running water due to scientific experiments at NIM, or the National Institute of Mental Health. The rats agree to help her, and Nicodemus gives her an amulet that gives its wearer powers when they are courageous. Mrs. Brisby finds out that the NIM people are coming to exterminate the rats, so they all have to relocate. The rats are moving Mrs. Brisby's house and her kids with a pulley system, but Jenner sabotages it, killing Nicodemus and causing the house to fall into the mud, where it begins to sink. Jenner and Justin battle. Justin is wounded, but Jenner's assistant turns on him and kills him before dying himself. With her house and her kids sinking into the mud, Mrs. Brisby uses the power of the amulet to lift the whole thing out of the mud and relocate it to safety. The next morning, the rats leave for Thorn Valley with Justin as their new leader, who has been given the amulet by Mrs. Brisby, and Timothy beginning to recover. And that is The Secret of Nim. An excellent summary of the film. Thanks. A lot going on, but I tried to try to keep it as short as I can. Yeah. So meanwhile, why don't you tell us then, Phil, what happens in your day after? Okay. Moving the house meant that Timothy had time to recover from his illness. Mrs. Brisby waited until he was tip-top, and then they all headed off to Thorn Valley to join the rats. It was a safer place with no sign of humans. Meanwhile, deep in a laboratory in Nim HQ, a small sickly rat is accidentally released. It is not long before the strange disease that has been created within it makes the leap to humans. What starts as a cough turns to a fever and then leads to a slow peaceful sleep that ends in death. The strange disease has a different effect on rodents. Those afflicted begin to grow and change. They become more intelligent. The world begins to change as the disease quickly spreads around the globe. And that's my day after. Wow, it's just your day after, huh? That, that, that kind of had the feel of like a, a long term and uh, you jumped right into it. I like it. Yes, it's just, you know, it's all going off, kicking off big time. Okay. But but what's happening with your day after? Well, a month later, Mrs. Frisbee is quite happy in her new house. Cynthia, Martin, Timothy, and Teresa are all happy as well, and Timothy is completely healthy again. Things are pretty much back to normal, although Mrs. Frisbee has noticed a few strange things that she can't quite explain. For example, she never has to fetch water anymore. The family's water bucket is always filled. She assumed one of her children had taken over the chore, but they all claim no knowledge of it. Also mysterious is her garden. Gardening had never come easily to Mrs. Brisby, and she had struggled over the years to grow enough food to help feed the family. Now her garden was so robust she barely needed to tend to it. She couldn't figure it out, but for the most part she put it out of her mind. One afternoon Mrs. Brisby is preparing dinner when there's a knock on the door. She opens it to find a young rat collapsed on her front stoop. Help, he gasps. The rats in Thorn Valley need your help. And that's my day after. Ooh, okay. Adventure heading our way there. I think there is, yes. Yeah. I think that's safe to say. Mm. But meanwhile, let's learn about your plague world, keeping it yes. cheerful. <laughs> yes, the fo- <laughs> it is just a bit. The following few months have devastated humanity. However, the rodent population, now large, more intelligent and mutated, has started their own civilization. Thorn Valley has not remained untouched. Mrs. Brisby, her family and the rats have also changed. Still not quite used to it, they managed to build new shelters. The Thorn Valley rats, already changed by... The machinations of Nim in the past have become even more intelligent and end up becoming de facto rulers of the area. However, elsewhere, other tribes of rats with more evil intent have begun plotting and building. And that's my immediate aftermath. Hmm, interesting. Mm. All right. I should. I suppose I should at least be happy that you didn't turn Mrs. Brisby into a serial killer. Well, I'm not quite <laughs> finished yet. There's still one segment to go, right? <laughs> okay, then what's happening then with yours then? All right, well, Mrs. Brisby makes her way through the heavy underbrush, reflecting on the events of the past two days. The young rat, whose name was Joseph, had told Mrs. Brisby that everything in Thorn Valley had started out fine, but then the rats were attacked by an invading force of rabbits. Justin tried to use the amulet to ward them off, but was unsuccessful as the power simply wouldn't work for him. 
Justin and a few of the rats were in hiding until she could arrive and hopefully use the amulet, while many of the rats had been enslaved by the rabbits. Leaving the kids with Mr. Ages, Mrs. Brisby and Joseph had set out yesterday and were almost to Thorn Valley. A few hours later, they arrived at a long-forgotten underground cave. Joseph leads Mrs. Brisby to Justin, who is battered and bloody, but alive. He and Mrs. Brisby hug, and then he explains his plan. My hope is that we can sneak into Rat City and use the amulet to drive the rabbits out. You are the only one I've ever seen use it successfully. Will you help us? Of course, says Mrs. Brisby. With a little preparation, Justin, Joseph, Mrs. Brisby, and a handful of other rats covertly make their way into Rat City. They creep towards the center of the town, but things unravel fast when they're spotted by a rabbit sentry. They try to run, but before they can get far, they're surrounded by rabbits. Mrs. Brisby holds up the amulet, summons all her will, and nothing happens. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Oh, good God. Okay. I like the way you've got the rab- the cute rabbits as the bad guys, and the, the rats the good guys. Well, thank you. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice turnaround from yeah. the usual... I will, I will, I will say, not an accident. Oh, excellent. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, meanwhile, let's uh, let's hear about this crazy world of yours and finish up with your long term. Okay. A hundred years later, the evil forces of the Rat Lord Beelzebub rule the land with an iron claw. All of the rodents are kept as either prisoners or slaves. Mankind has been forgotten, and all hope seems lost. Yet, in a small village far outside the Rat Empire, a young mouse by the name of Brisby has gone for a walk. He was sad as news had come that his older brother had died in a recent skirmish with the rats. While exploring one of the ancient ruins with arcane letters, N-I-M-H, Brisby found a small glowing amulet. The stone had been found again, and a small glimmer of hope had finally returned to the world. Oh, I just got a chill. Thank you. That's uh, that's my long term. I like it. I like it. I like how, you know, you went really bleak, but then you brought it back around to the original film, because, you know, it was kind of a different path, but... It's nice still, little nod it's back there. to the original. It's still, you know, the core of it. It's just yeah. like I was just, just a world ruled by by mutated rats. That's never been done before. With like some kind of mutated creatures taken over and humanity's died. <laughs> no, never been done. Never, never been done. Never. But I like it. I like the way it worked in this, <laughs> and I like how you how you brought it back to the original film. So nicely done. Hey, what's going on though with uh, with yours then? What's okay. how, why isn't the amulet working? Is it broken, or is she just not courageous enough? Well, we'll see. Mrs. Brisby holds up the amulet again, and once again, nothing happens. I I don't understand, she says, but Justin isn't wasting any time. He draws his sword and yells, To arms, men! All of his fellow rats draw their swords as well. We may go down, but we're taking as many of them with us as we can, he shouts. Mrs. B, get behind me! The rabbits start to move in on the rats, when suddenly there's a huge red flash in the sky. The rabbits are startled, and the rats and Mrs. Brisby look around in bewilderment. Suddenly, four figures appear atop a nearby rock. It's Martin, Cynthia, Timothy, and Teresa. The four of them are holding hands, and it quickly becomes apparent that the red light is emanating from them. Somehow, when Mrs. Brisby used the amulet to move her house, the powers of the amulet were imbued in her children. The four of them close their eyes, and a chain reaction of events is unleashed. A thundercloud forms above, and rain starts to fall from the sky. Lightning crashes down, missing the rats, but striking right at the feet of the rabbits, who flee. Suddenly, a mudslide rushes through the city, again missing the rats, but sweeping the rabbits out. Every time a rabbit tries to do anything but run, a strong gust of wind or a floodwater or a lightning strike drives them out. After a few minutes, the storm dies down. As the city rats start to peek out of their homes, they realize that the rabbits have all turned tail and fled. Mrs. Brisby rushes to her kids. Hi, Mama, Timothy says. She laughs and hugs them, and soon all the rats make their way outside and begin to celebrate their victory. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. Big adventure, like Mighty Morphin Mouse Rangers. Aren't they? <laughs> I was thinking more of like mice with the with the powers of the elements. Yeah, yeah. No, I got that. But, like, uh, but I guess you could the Avatar, like Last Airbender kind of thing. Or yeah, even more powerful. Sure. Kind of, yeah, Some, something like no, that. No, I like it. Yes, <laughs> thanks. It's good. Good using the uh, getting the powers being imbued in the kids. I like. Thanks. That. Thanks. Mm, excellent. I really wanted to do an uh, an after the credits scene that involved the rabbits ending up at, at Watership Down or one of the, like, <laughs> like Alfalfa or whatever the place is in Watership Down, but I. I just couldn't make it work. It felt too forced, so I let it yeah, go. Yeah, you would have had the big wig going, oh, those damn rats. Yeah, because because there's the bad guy rabbits and there's the good... I just, it was too much, but yeah, it did go yeah. through my head, so... No, I, I like that. It's good. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so that is The Secret of Nim. And Phil, do you have The Secret of Trivia for us? Oh, actually, I'll, I'll let that one go. That's not bad, that one. <laughs> thank you. Yes. I like how was... now you're grading me on my trivia puns every yeah. week, like a little commentary, like, oh, all right, <laughs> I'll give that one a... I'll give it a 42. I can dance to it. I'll allow it. 
Well done, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, this was uh, Will Wheaton and Shannon Doherty's film debut. Uh, the character of Frisbee, Mrs. Frisbee, was changed to Mrs. Brisby because of the Whammo company who made Frisbees. Yes, which is why I probably said Mrs. Frisbee like three times during my during my ending. So if any Eagle Ear listeners uh, caught that, now you know why. But you're not the only one, though, because this this happened late in the production of the film. So some of the actors had already finished their lines, so they had to go back through them. And then sound editors had to go by hand and slice off the slice off the brisk sound off other words spoken by the actors and then replace the frisk sound on the magnetic <laughs> wow. dialogue track. So that must have been a bit of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith was also the composer on Poltergeist, which was out the same year. And there are similarities in the two scores. Hmm. At the time of the release, it was the largest non-Disney animated film. Uh, Don Bluth, John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman all left Disney to pursue this project, which had originally been rejected by their former employer as they thought it was too dark to be a commercial success. Which is kind of funny if you look at like Disney films since then. Yeah, no, They yeah. certainly haven't been afraid to kind of... I mean, they're, they're still not overly dark Disney films, but I don't think this would have been out of place as a Disney movie. Oh, definitely not, yeah. Maybe this Bluth guy's on or something. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Are you a fan of this movie, Phil? Yeah, well, I only saw it when it first came out. Well, will it be first when it came out? It must have been because I saw it at the cinema. Okay. So, yeah, no, I remember really enjoying it at the time, but for whatever reason, I've never seen it since. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I loved it as a kid. It was one of my absolute yeah. favorites. I was definitely obsessed with it for a while, and I've revisited it, you know, every so often, not not all the time, but every every five or seven years, I, I, I'll watch it again, and, and I, uh, I really enjoy it. My kids haven't seen it yet, but I do have it uh, handy for them, so we're going to watch it soon, I think, because I think it is a really fun film. Yeah, I need to watch it with my daughter, because from what I remember, it did have like a a genuine sense of peril in places which you didn't oh, always yeah. get with animated films. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Okay, well, that's that's uh, that's the secret of Nimna. Excellent. All right, well, why don't we move on then to Anaconda? Yes. The, you know, the class, the, the best giant snake film that 1997 had to offer. <laughs> well, listen, as far as giant snake films go... It is one of the best. It is a lot of fun. That's it's not a high bar though. Yeah, it's it's one of those it's not a it's not a classic movie, but it's a classic bad movie. Could you say? Well, you know, you know what it is? I it's I mean I enjoyed it a lot when it came out, but I just just maybe I did as well. Yeah. A month or two ago, I was flipping around on TV and my kids weren't home and it happened to be on, so I threw it on and I probably watched the last hour of it and I got I got totally sucked into watching it. I mean, the special effects have aged, you know, obviously in some places, but it was still, I had a really fun time with just watching, you know, this giant snake, just taking people out one by one, like, which is what a giant creature movie is supposed to do. Yeah, that's what you want. You want, you want, you want a bunch of characters, uh, then you want a creature who's going to kill them and also maybe one bad guy who's also going to, you know, throw a spanner in the works. Right, exactly. So yeah. it's, it's a fun film. But it gets me. What a cast. Jennifer Lopez, Ice Cube, John Voight, Eric Stoltz, Jonathan Hyde, Owen Wilson, and Danny Trejo. And Carrie Wurr. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can't forget just... her because I may have a slight crush on her. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> uh, that's not a bad cast for one of these kind of films. Not bad at all. Not mm. bad at all. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and uh, give us the run through. Tell us what happens in the film. Okay. Well, a group of documentary filmmakers. Don't miss. Sit... Don't leave out any of the nuances either, Phil. This is a very <laughs> complex and layered plot. Okay. People go down the Amazon are both... Snake kills him. There you go. <laughs> kind of that sums it up, really. That that pretty much does. But I'll, I'll do a bit more because there's yeah. a bit more to it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> a group of documentary filmmakers are searching for a lost tribe called the Shirashamas on the Amazon River. They come across a Paraguayan snake hunter called Paul Cerrone, played by John Voight, who just loves leering at uh, Jennifer Lopez in this film. Yeah, he and was... excellent casting as a Paraguayan, too. I mean, yes, yeah. really we, inspired. Yeah, we need, we need a Paraguayan, so, of course... Right, I mean, who comes to mind first but John Voight? Yeah, whitewashing a hoy. Anyway, he's stranded. They help him. As he says, he can help them find the tribe. But Cerrone is well dodgy, and I actually did write that down. <laughs> and eventually, he takes command of the ship in his quest to capture a giant anaconda that they've been tracking. What follows is the death of the various characters by both the anaconda and Cerrone. One snake is killed, though, but a second large anaconda turns up. That's right, there's not just one anaconda in this film, there's two. This one kills Cerrone in a really quite graphic and horrible way, but it's really cool. Uh, but the others eventually kill him. The survivors are Terry, played by Jennifer Lopez, Danny, played by Ice Cube, and uh, Professor Kale, or is it Dr. Kale? Anyway, he's played by Eric Stoltz. Uh, they end up finding the natives that they were looking for, and they begin filming the documentary at the end of the film, which I always thought was a bit of an odd thing to do after what you've gone through. Yeah, exactly. But let's see what happens after that, when we'll find out. Yes. Yeah, we, we both enjoyed Anaconda. 
if you haven't seen it, but you just got a bunch of mates around and it's, you know, you're looking for something to watch and it's on, it's not going to win any awards. Okay. So what happens then in your day after? Okay. Well, Terry, Danny, and Kale make their way back to civilization. It's slow going at first, but eventually they make their way back to the U.S. consulate in Brazil. Knowing that no one will believe their story, they simply tell the authorities that Cerrone was a pirate who hijacked their ship and killed everyone else on board. After a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy, Danny and Terry retire to a hotel in Buenos Aires, waiting for their return flight home, while Kale is taken to a hospital. In the middle of the night, Terry wakes up to a flashlight in her face. In the glare of the light, she can see that the man holding the flashlight is also holding a gun, and it's pointed right at her. The man turns on a light, and Terry can see that his face is horribly scarred. She also sees two muscle-bound thugs standing behind the man, thwarting any chances of overpowering her assailant. Who are you, she demands. My name is John Burke, the man hisses. Paul Cerrone was my father. You killed him. You and that thing. Now I'm going to do what he couldn't. I'm going to capture one of those giants, and you're going to help me. And with that, Terry's world goes black. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Just when you thought you got out of the Amazon. That's right. All right, well, that's my day after, Phil. How about your day after? Terry, Danny, and Kale. Yeah, they work on making contact with the Shirashima's tribe, and luckily it goes well. They're welcomed in and taken to a nearby camp. Once they settle and begin to relax, the shock of what they had recently gone through hits them all hard. They feel sick and begin to shake. Dr. Kale explains to the tribe's headsman about their encounter with the anacondas. The headsman nods. He understands the danger that they've gone through. He motions to some members of the tribe who bring forth wooden bowls containing a thick purple liquid. The trio, not wanting to upset their hosts, drink the liquid. The extremely strong psychedelic hallucinogen in the liquid steals their consciousness away. And that's my day after. Interesting. I like it. You know, what's funny to me, they, they like at the end of the movie, they start filming the documentary, but Kale had an emergency tracheotomy. So like, he's got like a giant hole in his throat. Like, don't you think maybe you should get him to a hospital as soon yeah, as possible? The last thing they'd want to do is film it, you know, because right. you'd be going, let's get the hell out of here. And it's like, oh, well... Be- yeah, we're, we're a few miles upstream, so there's no chance a giant anaconda could make its way up here. Yeah, we're totally just, safe. Kale's just got like a finger over his throat going, I'm okay. <laughs> right. I'm fine. Right. It's not like there's going to be much chance of infection out here in the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> With no medication or antibiotics, yeah, what, what could I'm, go wrong? Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'm sure I can keep the wound clean. <laughs> <laughs> Pass me that whiskey. Right. Uh, okay then, so we've got uh, all the characters unconscious and both ending so far, but what's happening with your immediate aftermath? Well, Terry wakes up to bright sunlight nearly blinding her. It only takes a moment to recognize that the swaying of the floor means she's on a boat. She looks around and sees the unconscious form of Danny next to her. She nudges him and he comes too. Ah, oh, hell no, Danny says when he looks out the window and realizes he's back on the Amazon River. I like you the way you had the eyes keep saying, oh, hell no. Brilliant. Thank you. I thought it kind of had to. You know, what That's I mean? classic. Like Trying it. to keep with the character. Oh, definitely. <laughs> they get, And also my impression was was almost spotless. Uh, for a minute, I, I thought Ice Cube was like <laughs> it just punched you in the face yep. and taken over the show. I'm not as good as you at the impressions. But Hold on. Who is this? Is this Ice Cube or is this Mike? <laughs> anyway, they get up and realize the door isn't locked. So they make their way out of the room. Soon they realize they're not on a rundown fishing boat anymore. This boat is a high-tech modified trawler, seemingly too big for the river itself, with modern computer equipment, steel rigging, massive nets, and even some added-on serious deck guns. They find their way to the bridge, where Burke is studying a computer screen. Ah, you're awake, he says. We're tracking one of the monsters already. Since you two have already gone up against one and survived, you're going to help us capture this one. Alive. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Oh, I like it. Would he, would he, he'd probably say it like John Voight Laird, wouldn't he? Go, alive. Yeah. <laughs> he probably would, yeah. And lick, his, and lick his lips. Yeah. It's, I don't know, man. It sounds like game over, man. Game over. Could we'll be. We'll have to wait and see. We'll find out. Mm. All right. So, Phil, what's going on in your immediate aftermath? Okay. They wake up and it's days later. They have vague memories of a journey through the jungle, deep caverns and strange creatures all around. They don't know what was real and what was and what was part of the fever dream. They now find themselves in an ancient stone city deep in the heart of the jungle. There are hundreds of Shirashimas, and Kale is amazed to see how large and advanced the civilization is. They also realize that during their mad trip, they had been tattooed. Down their left arm, over their shoulder, and down their back and right leg is a large, stylized anaconda tattoo. They ask when they can return to the river, but the headsman shakes his head and points to a large cave mouth that is lit with flaming torches. The headsman says something to Kale. 
Terry and Danny wait for Kale to translate. He says we need to enter the cave and defeat the silent one. That's my immediate aftermath. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so what's happening then with this snake that's out there somewhere in the jungle? Okay, well, the helicopter lands on the deck of the abandoned trawler. Its last reported position was deep in the Amazon River. The pilot had no idea how it had made it all the way to the tip of the Atlantic Ocean. Several Navy seamen hopped out of the chopper and began to search the ship. There was nobody to be found. The boat had been heavily damaged, and it was clear that there had been a massive battle, or battles, on board the vessel. Commander Brody was just about to call the team back to the chopper when he heard a rhythmic banging noise. Calling his men to help, they trace the sound down to the bowels of the ship, where they find a makeshift wall of debris. With no small amount of effort, they remove the debris and are shocked to discover two survivors, a woman with wild eyes and an unconscious man. It's Terry and Danny. Terry is wild, incoherent, raving. The snakes! The snakes were just the guardians. We woke them up. We didn't know. We didn't know. The others. The others are so much worse. The team's medic gives her a sedative, and she passes into unconsciousness alongside Danny. What do you think that was all about? One of the men asks Commander Brody. No idea, he replies. Just then, a sound of incredible volume emanates from deep within the Amazon. It's a sound that can only be described as a giant roar. And that is the end. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, thank you. Oh, I like that one. Oh, we only find them. We didn't know. We didn't mean to wake them. Yeah. The oh, snakes brilliant. were just the, the guardians of whatever they found. Was that on Commander Brody? Was that a nod to Jaws or just... It was a nod, yeah. A little homage, yeah. if you will. It wasn't a direct, like like he was related necessarily. Yeah, just yeah. kind of a, you know, little inspiration. No, but yours was... A, I really like that. Yours went epic and, it, you know, there was a definite chill there when we didn't mean to wake them. I like that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm. I had fun with that one. All right. Well, I want to hear what's happening in yours. So why don't you go ahead and wrap us up and give us your long term. Okay. Their time in the cave was a blur of terror and battle. There was something within, something large, fast, and oh so quiet. Kale had not lasted long, but his death had given the others chance to find a moment of sanctuary before battle again once more. Eventually, Terry and Danny defeated the monster, who was snake bigger than any they had ever seen. The blood of the snake had covered them both, yet it seemed to be absorbed into their snake tattoos. From that moment on, they were imbued with the powers of an ancient snake god. Mm. Eventually returning home, they used their powers to protect the innocent, and the world had changed for the better. Wow. I like that. I didn't see it going in that way, but I like the kind of yeah. a superhero origin story. Yeah, because, you know, it's totally different, but you've they've had a terrible time, then they changed, and now they're better, and they're going to do snake god stuff. I like it. Yeah, I like it. No, that's cool. All right. Well, Phil, do you have any trivia conda for us? I don't. I can't do anything with it. I got nothing for that. Anna trivia. 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 Anaconda. Trivia. Got any trivia, Phil, about the movie Anaconda? I'm glad you asked my guest. Say, fella, you got any trivia about that Anaconda movie there? It'll cost you two bits, son. All right. I'll gladly pay that. (laughs) Sounds like a bargain. (laughs) (laughs) The hell? The hell's wrong with us tonight? Okay, trivia for Anaconda. In one scene, the controls for the animatronic Anaconda shorted out, and it lost control. And some of that footage made it into the movie. Wow, that's kind of cool. I like the fact they did that, yeah. The CGI for the snake, remember this was 1997, so the CGI for the snake cost $100,000 a second. Wow. Well, even back then when you saw it, you're going, wow, that's CGI. Yeah, yeah. Gillian Anderson and Juliana Margulies turned down the role of Terry, and Jean Reno was considered for the role of Cerrone. Also somebody I think of when I think of Paraguayans is, yeah. you know, Jean Reno. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe if the casting people actually look for people from the countries that cast them for, it might help. It's like the filmmakers had never even heard of Paraguay before. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, why not just make, you know, the character... A different nationality? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but that's his, uh, that's Anaconda. All right, very cool. Well, there you go. That's Anaconda and the Secret of Nim. Now let's move on to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein Phil and I take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. And this year we are traveling back to the year of my birth. <clears throat> And it is 1975. Oh, I wasn't even born for like another 10 years after that. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I wish. Yeah, we already did mm. your birth year, buddy. Yeah. It was before 1975, so. Ah, oh, damn it. 
Anyway, Phil, why don't you take us back in your time machine to that glorious year that brought me into this world, which, of course, is, makes it one of the most important years of all time, and tell us what the world was like. 1975, nothing of import happened. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, back in time then, we had the, the British Prime Minister was Harold Wilson, and the US President was Gerald Ford. Volkswagen introduced the Golf. Uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham joined Fleetwood Mac. Wheel of Fortune premiered in, on US TV. Space Mountain opened in Walt Disney World. Nice. Uh, lots of people were found guilty in the Watergate scandal. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so it can happen. Uh, Charlie Chaplin was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. Bill Gates and Paul Allen found Microsoft. Uh, I don't know whether they actually amounted to much, but probably a couple of computer geeks, so probably nothing. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, the Vietnam War ended. So actually, 1975 wasn't too bad so far. Right. Right. Uh, Former Teamster Union President Jimmy Hoffa was reported missing. Have they found him yet? Did you find him? <laughs> no. Nope. Uh, nope. NASA launched the Viking One planetary probe towards Mars. Faulty Towers aired in UK. In the, aired in the UK. NBC aired the first episode of Saturday Night Live. Queen released Bohemian Rhapsody. That's not Queen Elizabeth II. That's mentioned previously. This was Queen the Band. Right. Released Bohemian Good Rhapsody. Good to make that distinction. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Iron Maiden formed. Uh, Peter Gabriel leaves Genesis, and we had the births of 1975. We had the births of Dax Shepard, Bradley Cooper, Sarah Gilbert, Natalie Imbruglia, Drew Barrymore, Chelsea Handler, uh, Eva Longoria, Will, Will I Am, Zach Braff, Johnny Galicki, Lauren Hill, Russell Brand, Angelina Jolie, Linda Cardellini, Toby Maguire, Judy Greer, Marion Cotillard, Charlize Theron, Jason Sudeikis, and the big one, Mike Spring. That's I'm in pretty good company, actually. I have to say that's that's not a bad one. Yeah, I like yeah. most of those people. Uh, and we had the deaths of some people, P.G. Wodehouse, Josephine Baker, Graham Hill, and Pierre Paolo Pasolini. There you and that's go. That's 1975. Great. So, Phil, why don't you kick us off then and share your number 10? Yes, my number 10 is a classic slice of pulp. It is Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, which starred Ron Eli, who was also uh, one of my favorite Tarzans as well. But he plays Doc Savage... The Man of Bronze, who, with his team, the Fabulous Five, go up against, you know, bad guys, and they fight things, they punch things, they use their brains to solve problems, and it's lots of adventure. It's It goes into all kinds of... They go to jungles and cities, and all kinds of things go on, but I do like a bit of Doc Savage, and I'm still waiting to see if Shane Black ever does make the new Doc Savage film with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson as the title character, and that's Doc Savage. Good choice. Well, my number 10 is a pure nostalgia pick, and it's a tie, and it is The Apple Dumpling Gang and Escape to Witch Mountain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Two of yeah. my favorites from when I was a kid. Uh, and honestly, the I put them at number 10 because I loved them when I was a kid, and I, I could probably watched each of them a dozen times. But I don't know that I've seen either of them since I was a kid. So I can't put them higher because I really don't know how they hold up or really if they're that good of movies even after all. But for pure nostalgia reasons, like I said, when I was young, I loved these movies. So they had to make it onto my list just because they were such a, a, an important part of my childhood. No, that's great. It's, it's been a long time since I've seen Witch Mountain. I don't think I've seen the Apple Dumpling Gang. Uh, yeah, it was it was a comedy yeah. that was a lot of fun. Tim Conway yeah. and Don Knotts, I think. And uh, funny, funny stuff. But again, I don't know how it holds up watching it now. Well, there's nothing wrong. It's a bit of nostalgia and it's our favorite films. I'm not saying these are the best films that you had to offer, but they are our favorites. So we can pick what we want. Exactly. Okay, my number nine is a Roger Corman film, but directed by Paul Bartel. It's Death Race 2000, starring David Carradine, Sylvester Stallone, and a whole bunch of people driving around in crazy cars, killing people for points. And what more do you need? That's, you know, <laughs> kind of sums it up. A, that's a cat. It's a, it's stupid. It's fun. It's not as quite as action packed as it should be, but it's still got some cool moments. Uh, it's got some, it's got some laugh out loud moments as well when you find out how they get the bonus points and things like that. It's been remade. Well, they've had a few, haven't they? Different versions. Well, they made a remake and then they kind of launched a, a straight-to-video yeah, bunch yeah, of sequels yeah. that only loosely tie in. They get worse yeah. and worse with each one. All following the same basic concept, but the the original is silly fun. But I always enjoy it. But there you go. Absolutely. Death Race 2000. Okay, great choice. My number nine is also a kind of cheesy science fiction, although not as cheesy, but it is Rollerball starring James Caan. It's got roller skates uh, and it's sort of this futuristic sport where, you know, things get dangerous and, and sometimes deadly. And um, another one that was remade uh, not very well uh, back in the 2000s. But uh, but I like the original. It's a fun, you know, I like these kind of 70s science fiction films. They're not quite on the cusp of the, the, the special effects revolution. So they have a little bit of a dated feel, but they got some neat kind 
concepts and and you know this is a fun one it's not it's not a classic but it's enjoyable oh excellent yeah rollerball it's uh, that's been a long time since i've seen that one but i remember it being better than the uh it's a lot better than the chris klein one so yeah it's fun uh but my number eight is also another sci-fi one it is a boy and his dog oh good one that almost made my list yeah yeah it was my number 11 honestly yeah it's it's a uh, I, I always quite like this when i caught it late one night but it stars a young don johnson in a post-apocalyptic world trying to survive with his dog uh, and the te- I'm not sure whether it was was the dog telepathic or was he telepathic? The, or the dog was. It was the dog, yeah. Uh, trying to survive, uh, getting into all kind of scrapes, trying to find food, trying to find women because Don Johnson's character is trying to find women. Uh, uh, it's just got. It's like a more like a series of escapades they get up to and meeting people and things like that because it was based on a cycle of stories by Harlan Ellison as well. Yeah, but I quite like the whole world that they were in. It looked kind of cool. You did get this, it did have a good post-apocalyptic vibe and having a telepathic dog, a bit of a cheeky dog as well. Yeah. It was uh, It was good. It's good. Yeah, I worth, like it. Worth, worth tracking down if you've not seen it. Yeah, it's kind of a cult classic. I definitely enjoy it. Like I said, it almost made my list, so yeah. good choice. All right, well, my number eight is another comedy, uh, and it is starring one of the great comedic actors. It is The Return of the Pink Panther, starring Peter Sellers. Nice. Uh, And, you know, the first couple uh, Pink Panther movies were great. Blake Edwards, lots, you know, very funny stuff. Uh, This one is is one I enjoyed, especially when I was a kid. Again, I haven't seen it in a while, so it maybe could have been higher on my list uh, had I seen it more recently. But, you know, I love the Pink Panther movies. They're a lot of fun. And so that's my number eight. An excellent choice. Didn't make my list purely because all those Peter Sellers Pink Panther films, they just seem to bleed into one in my head, and I can't remember which ones. Yeah. I, yeah, things like that. So I didn't want to go, yeah, in just in case. Right, right. But it's still, I always still always have a laugh watching them, but I didn't want to commit to one. Sure, makes sense. So that's my yep. bad. But my number seven is The Stepford Wives. Very Another good sci-fi choice. one, sci-fi yes. horror. Yes. Uh, screenplay by William Goldman. I'm a lucky girl. Yeah, that's it. I'm a, yeah, it's all about some uh, Catherine Ross's character moving to uh, the suburbs with her husband, where she finds the women there are quite odd the way they behave, and then she finds a secret, and it's all shock horror. And re- the recent Get Out film sort of did borrow some elements for the whole, right, some right, of the, some of the feel and tone of it in places. But yeah. uh, the Stepford Wives was a the first one was very good. And it does creep you out. Excellent choice. Well, my number seven is a film that maybe some people expected to be higher on my list, but it is Dog Day Afternoon, directed by Sidney Lumet, starring Al Pacino, um, and obviously considered one of the greats of the 70s cinema. Um, And I I like Dog Day Afternoon uh, quite a bit, actually, but... It's two films for me. There's a first half, which is The Bank Heist, which I think is really electric and and exciting and thrilling. And there's a second half, which turns into sort of a slightly weird character drama, which doesn't work as well for me. Um, And that's that's kind of why it's only at number seven on my list. I I do think it's a good film, but it does lose me a little bit two thirds of the way through the film. And it just doesn't the the ending doesn't live up to the, the setup for me. So that's why it's it's definitely on there. It's a great film. But not one of my like true true favorites. Oh no, no, I, I, I kind of know what you mean. It is definitely yeah. I can see the a film of two halves. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number six though is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Great choice. It's Monty Python as King Arthur, coconut horses, lots of quotable scenes and things like that. So you don't need me to go into it because you all know Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right, exactly. That's my number six. All right, well, my number six is one that might surprise a few people to be on my list, but it is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson. (laughs) I wasn't sure it was going to be. You know, I always say that Jack Nicholson made like three good movies and then he just started playing Jack Nicholson over and over and over again. This is one of those three good movies. Um, You know, I, I really do like this movie a lot it's a it's a dark film it's a deep film uh but he he is great in it there's a lot of great supporting actors it's a good story um it is one of those films that i've seen once i don't know that i ever need to watch it again yeah uh it's not something i you know i pull out on a friday night i'm like yeah let's all gather around and watch cuckoo's nest but i i do think it's a great film it's a classic for a reason and i do think that jack nicholson is actually good in it so uh so it is my number six it did definitely make the list oh an an excellent choice okay my number five is picnic at hangin rock Excellent. By uh, Peter Weir, which is a very dream-like, strange film all about some schoolgirls and a teacher who go to for a picnic at Hanging Rock and the schoolgirls disappear. And it's very, very strange and odd, but beautifully shot. The sunlight and the way it's all composed and the whole story, it just, you're never quite sure what's what's happened and why it did and things like this. And it's a mystery that looks beautiful. 
That's my number five. I have been meaning to check that film out, and I just haven't ever gotten around to it yet. So it's not on my list, but only because I haven't seen it yet. I know lots of people do like it, but it's probably not as widely seen as, as some films. So, right. yeah, tr- tr- track that one down and give it a watch. Will do. All right, well, my number five has already appeared on your list, and it is The Stepford Wives. Uh, you kind of said what needed to be said about it. It is a great kind of you know campy thriller-type film, but what I love about it is just that Hey, that's just my kind of film. I love those movies where it's sort of like you're not quite sure what's going on, and then it's sort of this big reveal at the end. But um, I also love how just how much a part of the popular lexicon the, the Stepford Wives has become. Like yeah, you still yeah. you still hear that Stepford term whenever somebody meets someone who's kind of fake and plasticky. It's always like, oh well, she hmm. was a real Stepford wife, or you know, they, they, uh, this is a Stepford neighborhood, you know. And I just love that. Yeah, you yeah. Know, Forty yeah. years later, that's still a term that we use in in pop culture. So. That's uh, that's always you know a, a a marker for me. But I do like the film very much. It's a lot of fun. Excellent. It is weird how some phrases like like Stepford, even people who've never seen the film and couldn't tell you what the film is right, about. Right. It's become yeah. It, it describes something strange yep. how that happens. Yeah, it is. Okay, my number four is one you've mentioned. It is Dog Day Afternoon. Ah, oh, very good. Brilliantly acted. And as you say, it's, it starts off with this brilliant bank heist and then you find out the reason why they want the money and then it takes a different turn. Cast is just superb. The acting is amazing. This tight, taut drama with some very funny moments as well. Al Pacino is just superb in the role and it's just, just a fantastic movie. Indeed it is. And it won good. the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. There you go. Well, my number four did not win the award for best original screenplay, <laughs> but it has appeared on your list, and it is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, it, a great comedy that, you know, I, I watched this movie th- for the first time when I was in high school, and I think that's the perfect time to watch this movie, because I think younger than that, and you won't get the jokes, and then yeah. older than that, and it might not resonate as well with you, because it is awfully silly but <laughs> right at that high school age when you're like 15 or 16 it is the funniest movie in the world and i watch it now and i don't i don't find it as funny as i did back then but i, I still do get a hell of a kick out of it there's just so many great scenes like and like you said so many scenes you can quote it's now better i think as a collection of funny scenes than as an actual movie from start to finish but yeah yeah it's still my number four because i do love it excellent okay my number three has also been on your list it is one flew over the cuckoo's nest i had a feeling that would show up on your list yeah as you say, it's uh, Jack Nicholson does a stunning performance with a, a great supporting cast of some big names and some great character actors. Yep. It's funny, it's dramatic, it's heartbreaking in places. And that's my number three. Very good. Well, my number three has, once again, already appeared on your list. And it is, this may be a bit of a surprise, though, Death Race 2000. I really love this movie, I have to say. I watched it for the first time, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago when one of the DVD versions came out. And I had never never seen it, but I'd always heard about it. But I knew it had Sylvester Stallone in it. We all know I'm a big fan of his. And I liked the concept. It seemed like fun. I was like, eh, it's Corman. I'm sure it's garbage, but I'll I'll toss it in and watch it. And I sat there and watched it with a smile on my face from start to finish. I just thought it was so much fun. And and so it's, it's cheesy and it's campy, but I don't know. There's something about it. There's an energy to it. There's something about there's there's a chaos to it that I really yeah, yeah. really enjoy and and for me aside from my top two films which are slightly more serious as far as like the film that I get the most fun out of watching Death Race 2000 I can throw on and watch it and just sit back and, and laugh and have a great time with it oh an excellent choice yeah now before you move I'm on have we got the same top two I have a feeling that I I know for sure we must have the same number one and I'm pretty yeah. confident based on what you haven't said yet we have the same number two so this could be a rare top two double whammy but let's see what you got okay my number two is three days of the condor ding 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 as Yay. you like to say that's a bingo uh, yes Sidney pollack starring who was it what's his name robert redford <laughs> some robert guy redford. that i i think I, th- I feel like i've mentioned him on the show once or twice before <laughs> yeah robert redford faye dunaway max von Sydow and cliff robertson in an absolutely brilliant spy thriller and uh, the first the born identity has really got a lot to uh thank this film for yeah yeah. yeah, Three Days of the Condor is such an amazing film. I didn't see it until uh, probably about 15 years ago. I only and saw it about three or four years blew, ago for the yeah, first time, blew, actually. blew me away when I watched it. It's really a great example of the, when you hear about, you know, for people who aren't as familiar with 70s cinema, when you hear about the 70s, like conspiracy thrillers and, you know, that kind of that genre that was such a big thing in the 70s. This is like the archetypal film of that genre. If you want to see what a great paranoia you know, conspiracy thriller from the 70s is like, watch Three Days of the Condor and it'll yeah. tell you everything you need to know. And I mean, just the concept alone, you know, a, a guy who's working, a CIA analyst, he, he goes out, to, you know, leaves the office to get coffee or sandwiches or whatever. He comes back and everyone in the office is dead. Yeah. And then he has to go on the run. And it's like just that concept alone, if that doesn't hook you, 
I, I don't know what will, you know. And it's it's a fantastic film. Redford is brilliant as always, and it's just a nail biter up until the very end. And I just love the way it's, it keeps you guessing, even with the way the characters are going to act. Yeah. Because Max von Sydow, there's bits when he turns up, and I'm going, oh no, right. and it goes a whole different way, and you're going, yeah. oh, brilliant. Right, right. And the right. ending, you're just going, <gasps> and that's yeah. all I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, it's classic. So that a great pick. I'm not surprised that was your number two as well as mine. Yeah. All right. Well, number one then. It's kind of like you know, last week we had the we did we did 1980 and the Empire Strikes Back was our joint number one because duh, obviously that was yeah, going to be the yeah. pick. And this is really one of those picks where it's like, well, duh, it kind of has to be this. You want to reveal it? Go on, you say it. It is Jaws. Oh. <laughs> no, it is Jaws. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, not only is it the best film of 1975, it is one of the best films of all time. And for me, I know that of every movie I can think of, I can't think of any movie that's stopped me more than Jaws has. If I am flipping through the TV and Jaws is on, I will sit down and watch it from whatever point we're at until it's over, no matter what I'm doing. I can't tell you how many piles of laundry have not gotten folded because I'm flipping around looking for something to watch and then Jaws comes on and I get sucked into it. And I will watch this movie no matter what. And and, I mean, it's one of my all-time favorites. And if that doesn't, you know, sum up what's so great about it, I don't know what it's, does. It's just they got everything right, didn't they? And you and you got it spot on. When it does come on the TV, you just sit and watch it. I don't know how many times I've seen it. Oh, I can't even tell you. I mean, it's it's. But even if you turn over and it's just beginning, and you're going to go out, you go, whoa, <laughs> right, right. But uh, Jaws is on, and even yeah. with commercials, like I own it on Blu-ray. But yeah. there's something <laughs> it doesn't even matter if it's on TV. You know, I'll just sit there and watch it. And if the commercials come on, I'll just wait for the commercials to end. I'll watch it. I will watch that movie over and over and over again because it is perfect. Yeah, There's nothing I, about it that doesn't work. I remember the first time I saw it when the head falls at the bottom of the boat scared me so much, but I still wanted to see it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's brilliant. I mean, Steven Spielberg obviously it launched his career, turned him into a household name, and led to a career filled with great movies. But I mean, Jaws is just it's Jaws. Yeah. Every scene is a classic. Yeah, it really is. Well, I'm glad to see we were on the same page for those two, Phil. Those are two really great movies. Actually, All the I'll, way through the list, pretty, yeah? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of similarities. I think it was a, a good year for films, but there was definitely a handful that really, really stood out. No, some some great films there, and any of them, I mean, it's usually worth checking out the films you mentioned, but uh, definitely some of these. Probably everybody's seen Jaws, but some of the others, if you haven't seen them, but you fancy like the sound of them, go check them out and go tell all your friends about them because there's some gold in these here lists. That's right. All right. Well, that wraps up 1975. And as always, that's going to start to wrap us up. Phil, why don't you tell people what they can look forward to hearing next week? Yes, we're going to be doing one of our classic combinations. Uh, We're going to be doing My Best Friend's Wedding and Phone Booth. Two very fun films in very different ways. Yeah, and if uh, if you ever ask us how we come up with the combinations, don't ask because it's a very highly scientific thing. We've got algorithms and all kinds of things. We've got like a whole bank of supercomputers working out the, the ultimate you know, combinations for our films. Yeah, I mean, frankly, you you probably, we could explain it to you, but you probably wouldn't understand it. I mean, heck, I, yeah. I barely understand it. Yeah, so. it's very, very complex and computer stuff. Yes. So mm-hmm. My Best Friend's Wedding and Phone Booth, and what year are we going to be talking about, Phil? We're going to be doing our top 10 favorite films of 2003. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, that's going to finish things up for this episode. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see after the ending. I hate you. This is brilliant. Yes. <laughs> Nailed it right out of the gate, Phil. That's it. Can't get any better than this. Good night. We, yeah, we should just stop now because it's all downhill from here. <laughs> oh, dear me. I feel, ah, like, I, have to, I, feel like I have to put a disclaimer on our outtakes that they're, that they're like R-rated. Yeah. Atten- attention, listeners. The following outtakes may contain some material that is going to venture past our PG-13 rating. Yeah, but is it? It's just only if you've got a dirty mind. Right, it's innuendo. Yeah. Anaconuendo. <laughs> oh, good God. <laughs> I'm out. But, what, but what's happening with your day after? Well, I, I got to say, I, I definitely went in a very different direction. <clears throat> okay, hit me with so it. So here we go. Once the disease started to spread... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Did I get you drinking again? Yes. Luckily, I didn't... <laughs> I didn't spit anywhere. <laughs> All I can picture is John Voigt saying like something about the giant anaconda and Owen Wilson just being like, I got your giant anaconda right here. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... <laughs>
you can take the girl out of the Amazon, but you can't take the Amazon yeah. out of the girl. I don't really know if that <laughs> that works here, but snakes in the Amazon, cage goes in the <laughs> 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 so John Burke John Burke attorney John at law yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go into that jungle I want to sue that anaconda so let me just get this straight you've got a cave and a giant anaconda and they're, I, no, I they're going I into the cave <laughs> I didn't say there's no, a giant anaconda no no not yet I'm just saying there's there's some imagery at work here but Oh, no, actually, no, I didn't mean it like that. Haven't <laughs> <laughs> oh, you in your filthy mind? I was trying to make you some cool kind of fever dream quest. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. No, that's fine. I, I thought maybe you were going, uh, you know. Snakes trying, going in the cave. Trying to be subtle, you know. Yeah. Snakes S- backing out the cave and going in again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. Leave Snake my... goes into the cave. It does. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Oh man! Let him, let him well, go. you're you're definitely winning the make the co-host laugh battle this episode. <laughs> Meanwhile, how are things going? <laughs> now we're now we're getting creepy. Alive. Okay. <coughs> Sorry. That's all right. Mm, alive, it is. <laughs> you know, one of these days that's going to not make me laugh, but I think that day is very far away. Hi, I'm fake Chad Michael Collins, and I say that snake's alive. <laughs> Oh, this just in from the Freddie Prince Jr. minutes. The snake is alive. <laughs> it's alive. God. Now I'm laughing and crying at the same time. I'm just like, make him stop. <laughs> okay. I'll make the snake stop. <laughs> stop. Good job, because that snake's alive. <laughs> do, you, do you need some time? Did you like me to take a break and come back so you can no, get this all out of your system? I'm just at the very end of me just saying, alive, <laughs> in all these different ways. Yeah, that's what the world needs. Alive, 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 alive. <laughs> Sorry, go. <laughs> yeah, because I can now. Okay. It's alive. <laughs> <laughs> We're never going to finish this episode. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and you've got a cheek, though, to say with my this cave with a snake. And then you're mentioning in yours. What's going on there? <laughs> I can't even use that. I know you can't. <laughs> Come on in. There's plenty to see. <laughs> penny to see your giant anaconda? <laughs> no, thanks. I'm good. Keep my penny. <laughs> and Peter Gabriel leave. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. top podcasting right there, Phil.